All right, and we're live. Uh, how is it going, Alex? Hey, Shimon, how are you? Long time, no record. It's been a while. Yeah, a lot has happened since last time, but uh, yeah, long time indeed. A lot has happened. We have the elections, a presumptive winner, a fight for who won. Um, a lot the world has changed, but what has not changed is the fact that we called it a while ago, like pat on the back to us, that the stock market will keep on going up and up and up, regardless of who wins. And we've been proven to be true. And all those naysayers who said if Biden wins, you know, the stock market is going to crash. And the other side, if Trump keeps on going, the stock market will crash. All that was clearly bullshit. They should have listened to our podcast. Um, but we said that it would keep on growing and, frankly, at the same rate. And it's exactly what happened. Yeah, it's really interesting basically to see that the main driver of the growth is really the huge stimulus package that was passed before the elections. So, yeah, it uh, it did indeed continue to grow. And uh today we have another exciting topic uh to discuss which is actually much more uh relevant uh in light of the election results. Yeah, let's talk about a little bit about, you know, given the fact that Biden has won, uh, if one was to invest in an index, call it, let's call it a NASDAQ versus S&P, uh, the battle of the giants. This is what we should call this episode. NASDAQ versus the S&P, the battle of the giants. Which one do you want to invest in? Which index is going to give you bigger results over the next four years? Was uh, it the NASDAQ or the S&P? Yeah, that's that's a very interesting uh, topic. And so, yeah, basically to set it up, uh, Nasdaq has been outperforming the S&P big time since COVID and uh, and also historically. Right. Like if you look, I think, across any time period, except if you bought right at the peak of the dot com bubble, um, the Nasdaq has outperformed the S&P. And so the question is. Why would you want to invest in the S&P instead of the Nasdaq, given the mm-hmm. fact that it's uh, always outperformed? I think this is so it's fascinating. We should just jump in. And, um, you know, a lot of it, I think half of this conversation we've at least played with before. The other half, I think we'll just uh, say it as we go along. But one thing that that you mentioned briefly and in passing, but it's actually very important Historically, the Nasdaq did outperform the S&P. And if we're looking at this from a future perspective in terms of, you know, for the foreseeable future, more than four years, it might be one answer. But because we're looking into it, you know, next four years, maybe even next couple of years, maybe even a more interesting discussion. Because COVID, because of where we are with COVID, assuming that, that the vaccines are coming uh, later on this month, and they're going to start being rolled out in the first half of next year. The dynamic between which industries are going to come online and have growth from being super depressed is very different than a long-term steady state economy that's or you know expectations of the economy that's driven strictly by major macro trends, right? So if there's a recession, most things go down. When there's a you know when there's an economic upturn, most things go up together. But what happened with COVID is it un, uh, unevenly affected different industries, right? And it also NASDAQ grew 
specifically, you know, your Zooms of the world, your Microsofts of the world, Amazons for infrastructure, because we heavily shifted the supply chain over into the tech world, into the stay-at-home connectivity world, into the stay-at-home delivery world, uh, into the stay-at-home, you know, tech conglomerate world. That's Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Now that COVID is going to abate, hopefully, you know, does tech still have that same runway or not? Are there other depressed industries that are going to have a major upswing now if the world goes back to normal, right? And where are those companies located? Are they in S&P? Are they in the NASDAQ? And what enables what? I think this is a very interesting topic, especially in the, in the near term. I completely agree. And let me throw some stats at you. So if you look at a 10-year compound uh, rate of return, uh, the S&P gave you around 14%. So it's like 13.91%. And the NASDAQ gave you 20%, so 20.1%. But if you look at only the last one year, the S&P gave you 21%. And the Nasdaq gave you 52%. So it's like more than double the rate of return of the S&P over the last year. And if you look at it over 10 years, it's uh, it's like, call it 60, 70% higher. Now, the, the idea, why, why is it so important to me? Because there, there are a couple of factors that changed right now. So one, as you mentioned, is COVID, right? So COVID basically increased the revenues of the Nasdaq companies because everybody's working from home. It also decreased the revenues of S&P companies because everybody's working from home <laughs> and not traveling and all of that stuff. So that's like one thing. The second thing is, and so again, because we'll have a vaccine, you could make the case that over the next four years, those things will normalize, right? So like the S&P will outperform the Nasdaq. Then another argument you could make is the whole Biden platform has a lot to do with traditional industries, right? Like all of the clean energy and all of the all of these things that Biden said he would invest in. I don't see the Nasdaq really benefiting from them. I definitely see the S&P benefit from them. So those are two things that changed. It's it's an interesting point. I, you know, we should come back to this to the macro trends, but just uh, a touch upon regulatory. It's you're right. You know, Biden in general is going to be any i think president is going to be more general or traditional if you will um even calling clean energy traditional but more towards your broad spectrum of industries although i think had trump won it would have been actually much worse for tech because all attacks on the social media platforms on big tech to say that there is anti-republican and anti-trump bias there and if there is a true Republican Congress, which we know there won't be, even if they win the Senate on uh, January 5th in Georgia, and Republicans hold on to the Senate, we're going to have a split Congress. But there is, there would have been more risk, I think, for big tech had Republicans fully controlled Congress, although there is still a risk for tech. I think both sides, there's a bipartisan push now to come after some of the big tech companies and figure out how to regulate. Ironically, both sides are yelling that the tech companies are not are either not censoring enough or censoring too much. But they're both coming at this, you know, the freedom of speech argument that um, social network platforms have. But it's coming from both both sides. So, you know, 
do you think, I don't know, we should, we should talk about whether we see tech being adversely affected by regulatory, because obviously NASDAQ is very tech driven. So, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. So let's talk about tech in general as an industry, because like, yeah, every tech company has their own idiosyncratic like risks and, and opportunities. But like, you know, tech has a lot of data, AI, all of that stuff. The question is, will it continue outperforming traditional boring industries? Um, also, let's not forget that tech is part of the S&P. So it's almost like, do you want your exposure to be only to tech companies or like to tech companies and other normal non-tech companies? Yeah, so this is, so this is great. So let's, so, okay. So let's start putting regulatory aside for a second. Um, the big difference between S&P and NASDAQ is that, you know, one is very much overweight in tech, NASDAQ. Uh, S&P is pure you know, like a, a cut almost of the whole U.S. industry. However, as big tech gets bigger, it becomes more and more part of the S&P. So there's definitely overlap. So I think it's, that's very important to understand. And it's also important to understand two things. One, that the overlap is growing because, as again, as big tech is the, is the, is the, the super players, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, uh, get bigger, they become a much larger part right of the index um i i think the other part is which tech exposure do you want right so do you want all across tech and some of the smaller players some of the players like zoom that have been that have been uh kind of popping because of covid right or do you want the super majors so i think that's that's part one let's talk about that right what exposure do we do we think we want and then let's talk about what what do we think is the runway, at least in the near term, in the year or two, right, between your traditional industries, like, for example, hotels. If you look at hotels, they've almost rebounded to their all-time highs. Not all of them, but if you look at Marriott, which is the biggest uh, hotel owner in the world, doing quite well. They're rebounding. Airlines, not as much, because people think probably you're going to stay more in hotels than you are going to fly. But look at Disney. Disney's starting to come back with their parks and so on and so forth. So are you going to have this entertainment swing, travel and entertainment, pent-up demand? Yeah. Or are you going to have, you know, exposure to some of these new tech players like telemedicine players, work-from-home players that are that are here to stay, right? So there's a lot there. We just talk about are they here to, are they here to stay? Where do you want your the exposure and the runway to be in the next couple of years to capture this post-COVID rebound? Yeah, and I mean, this pretty much links up nicely to what we said uh, in one of our previous episodes, which is like, you know, when we say NASDAQ, it's like the current tech, but like tech has the ability to transform all the industries. Like if you talk about telemedicine, if you talk about even just normal medicine, like, you know, there's some, uh, you told me about Moderna and all of their, you know, crazy stuff, how they can cure many other diseases that's not just COVID with this system. So like, you know, like maybe this COVID thing will give us a boom in healthcare. Uh, also, even things like transportation, like, I don't know, will Uber and Lyft, uh, if they chose to list, would they list in a NASDAQ as a tech company or would they list in the S&P as a transportation company? 
Um, so my thesis is that basically, and again, I'm happy for you <laughs> to critique it, but I think the S&P is actually a better trade right now, like if you were to enter right now. And it's not so much because of the regulatory stuff, which I frankly don't know, you know, where, in which direction it can go. But it's two things. One, pent up demand. And two, the stimulus uh, that would go mostly to non-tech companies. So like all of the things that Biden ran on will go, maybe stimulus is not the right word, it's basically all this build back better thing where they want to invest in like clean energy and you know all of the stuff that we spoke about last episode that I think the government shouldn't do. But uh, the fact is they want to do it. So I think both of these things will cause the S&P to outperform and also the price to earnings ratio is so high on the Nasdaq it's insane. I don't think that it will crash. Like some people say, oh, if your price is so high, it has, the price has to go down to normalize the price to earnings. I think, no, the price will just stay stagnant as the earnings go up mm-hmm. until the price to earnings ratio normalizes. So that's yeah. like my thesis for investing in S&P and not in the NASDAQ. So, so I, well, just a quick, I think Uber is part of the NASDAQ, but um there's yeah there's a lot here so here's here's kind of my thesis i was always nasdaq forward and you know uh, outside of this podcast you and i always talk about investment advice and we actually help each other with our positions um and and you got me into you know double leveraging the s&p which i thank you for because it's it's been it's been very nice and now i know i want to get you into and i want to get myself into at least 2x leveraging the Nasdaq. And so here's my here's kind of my thesis on the Nasdaq. Um, you know, I think everything other than the immediate short run, I still think the Nasdaq is going to be the heartbeat uh, of of growth. And here here's why. Oh, I don't. Let's talk about Biden first. Regardless of where he says he's going to inject money. Um, I guess there's two types of ways to fund uh, growth. One, through direct government injection. The government's going to go and pay for whatever work that needs to be done, more of the Biden way. The other is some sort of stimulus and, and tax cuts, which gives it to consumers or businesses more of the Trump way or the Republican way. That's not going to happen. That's not going to wait? Not going to happen. Yeah, not like going to happen. Tax cuts? Nope. I agree. I agree. I agree. But I don't care necessarily. I I think under Biden, yes, government will have investment, but there's also going to be more checks to consumers. And if we have learned anything from what happened when the government went out and printed a whole ton of money, is that inflation happens with investment assets, real estate, the market, and others. Further, I think that this inflation within these uh, Bitcoin, within these investment assets will continue to go up when the government prints more money, whether it's through injection or not. And the reason why, I think even if you go give it to reg- to businesses to fund or do something, there'll be select industries. But overall, let's say you talk about infrastructure, okay? Democrats talk about investing in infrastructure, roads, buildings, blah, blah, blah. That's all great. However, no modern business in today's world is going to build itself without some kind of digital transformation. 
And the word digital transformation is a cliche term from literally 10 years ago. Really picked up steam over the last probably seven, five to seven years, that period. But now it's it's yesterday's, you know, cliche business term. However, this means that basically any legacy business model needs to be digitized in order to compete, just like infrastructure players need to be digitized and so on and so forth. And the first thing that we're going to do when we build infrastructure for those, you're going to roll out asphalt and engineering uh, companies are going to come in and they're going to design stuff. They're going to hire construction workers. All that stuff will still need your CAD software, your, your digitization. As people think about 5G, for example, and edge computing and IoT, putting sensors in modern infrastructure, building modern, uh, let's say, rail, if they actually invest in that. All of that is going to need tech components. And I still thoroughly believe that tech is the lifeblood. Tech is our, it's no longer an industry, right? It's kind of the, the min bar. It's, you know, the, 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 uh, the U.S. steel, if you will, right? The general oil of, of, of today. And so it's going to underpin whichever investment they're going to make in quote-unquote traditional industries. Clean energy, full of tech, right? Um, regular energy, even when you go to mines and fracking, which they want to get rid of the Democrats, um, and I believe rightfully so, we need to evolve and move on. What's going to happen to those people when you get rid of them? You need to give them new world jobs. So you're going to have towns that are out of business. The only new world jobs you can give them is tech first jobs. So I think no matter what happens, tech is still going to underpin a lot of these changes because it has to. And so this tells me that not only is it going to be the big tech players that are going to stay, but also some of these smaller tech players that are going to bubble up or come up, you know, or new players will come to the indices to help modernize these left behind uh, industries that have been completely decimated by COVID, but frankly, even before COVID, right? Like infrastructure we've been talking about for a long time, for decades. So that's, I actually really like this angle, which is like everything needs tech in order to um, to like revitalize and, and for growth to come. And then the question you're asking is, let's say you're a traditional company that now is using tech to cut costs, for example, who captures more of the benefit? Like, do you want to uh, hold the stock of the tech company that sells components to the traditional company? Or do you want to hold stock of the traditional company that after getting the components from the tech company, it can operate much more, um, you know, much more efficiently? So I actually don't know what's the answer to this question. Like who captures more of the value? Timing is a major component here, right? Because it's almost kind of raised the whole upside of COVID. Because let's say this is the case. Let's say you have a traditional company that, that hasn't gone through digital transformation yet. In the long run, that traditional company will capture more of the value because it's going to treat tech as an investment, right? It's almost like mm-hmm. you, you know, you you install this new software, you install Oracle, you install SAP, whatever, right? It's a, it's a big capex capital expenditure outlay right now, and then later on in year two, three, four, five, it's you know you're paying kind of marginal costs, so you're paying you know operating costs on this thing and and then you reap the benefits. You have some sort of break even three years or four years after this digital transformation. But you're paying a shit ton of money early on to tech companies to modernize. Yeah. 
Exactly. Right. So in the near term, tech companies are still going to reap the reward. In the longer term, that that those value pools will shift towards the traditional companies. This is in the case of a digital transformation, right? Um, the the so I think for people for companies that haven't been digitally transformed, there's still a lot of runway with tech just because of the capital outlays. However, that's going to be counterweighed actually by what's going to come online. Where's the pent-up demand? It's more in traditional industries, right? It's to travel and stay places. Yeah, yeah. Which so, are hotels. But, but wait, but you, so you said two things. So one supports investing in tech and one supports investing in the S&P 500. Uh, yes. But support investing. It is one does support investing in the S&P 500, but I'm going to lead you back to the NASDAQ. Ready? Yeah. Here's how. Um, you could stay and you could buy shares in Marriott or you can all buy shares in Airbnb, mm-hmm. right? Which is uh, actually, we should look up where it listed. I'm, I'm, it has to be on the NASDAQ. Um, I know they just went public. Um, but it's you're still going to have these new age tech companies taking either competing with or taking the spot of your um, the more the more traditional players. So it's still mm-hmm. going to come back to tech. And the more we talk, the more I'm, you know, uh, thinking through my thesis here, the more I, I want to triple leverage now the NASDAQ. I really think that even with high P ratios, and we should talk about, I mean, the significance of that, I think there's still, there's still going to be a lot of room and a lot of pent-up demand and a lot of, frankly, underpinning of the revitalizing of our economy, the global economy, will be through these tech players. So you're saying that NASDAQ is your bet? Yes. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, then the other question is like, first of all, I would never recommend you to triple leverage anything because like it's a sure way to get a margin call or to get <laughs> money like that. No, seriously, I ran... Uh, I ran like simulations of double leverage versus triple leverage, and it's not even close. Like triple leverage, it gives you a couple more percentage advantage points, but like the risk is so, so, so much crazier. Like it takes forever to, um, you know, if we have a correction with triple leverage, you're pretty much wiped out. So no triple leverage. But the question is, do you like if you have to choose between like NASDAQ unleveraged? Because look, the problem with NASDAQ is that it goes down a lot when it goes down mm-hmm. uh, just because of the crazy price to earnings ratios. And so I would be very afraid to even have like a normal leverage um, on the NASDAQ. Like, so for me, if I would, if I were to hold the NASDAQ, it would be completely unleveraged because it gives you enough. Like it gives you fucking 20% per year. Like, what do you need more? You know, 40%. So, so. no, but, but it's 40% at a, at a cost. Like, just think about it. In in March, when they had the big drop, it went down from 218 to, like, 188, like, mm-hmm. in a few days. Like, it was terrible. I mean, I don't know. Look, I hear you. I'm looking this up as we, as I speak. You know, and the average P ratio for the NASDAQ right now is about 21 um, and it's been oscillating a little bit. It's actually not that far off of uh, where it was before. I should look up um, <clears throat> S&P's average PE, which is, uh, I'll get back to you in a second. But I hear you, okay, no double leverage, 
Or the uh, other problem, uh, let me just tell you, the dot-com was a crazy, crazy thing. So the dot-com bust, uh, it went from 112 down to like 20. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm talking about QQQ, it's, it's an index. Um, and, and guess how many years it took it to go back to its like peak level? Uh, I don't know how many years. Five years. So you had to wait for five entire years for your investment. Oh, no, sorry, not five. Uh, sorry, 15 years. So you had to wait for 15 years just to get beyond the, the price that you bought if you bought at the top. And the crazy thing is, if you held until today, it's actually not bad. <laughs> it's actually not a bad return. Like if you bought at the top of the dot-com bubble, it was 110 and now it's 307. So like in 20 years, you tripled your money, which is not bad. So, so are you saying that's, that's, that's I'm just good, that's okay or not? Or no, not? okay. I'm saying the volatility is much, much larger on the NASDAQ. And yes, it's been going up like crazy, but, you know, I don't know if it will. If there's a correction, you know, it could be super painful. So I'm looking at, uh, I'm looking at, this seems a little bit off, but I looked at a quick source, S&P, the P ratio, and then S&P 500 is 37. And on the NASDAQ, it is uh, trailing 12 months, but it's 31 as of uh, 6.30 of this year. It's actually not that far off. We have to, we have to kind of dig into that further. This is just a really quick, a really are, quick. Are you saying the NASDAQ is lower than the S&P? It can't be. It can't be either. I mean, that, well, it can be, but um, this, is, this is what I'm saying. It also surprised me, but we can look into this further, but. Uh, we should look into why that actually means the S&P is way, <laughs> way out of bounds in terms of its valuations. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think, I, you know, we also talked in previous episodes about, uh, about the outlook of investment, right? And horizons. And we both agree that we're long-term investors. And from a long-term investment perspective, it should be okay waiting whatever time it is, as long as it comes back up. Right. As long as on the upswing, you, you have to have the patience to 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 hold it through those periods. We hold it through those periods, it'd be fine. The question is really, I think to me, is this long term upside. And the more and more I think about it now, I'm biased because I came from tech. But I do see how tech underpins a shit ton of other industries. In fact, every other industry. And even look what's happening now, right, with once when we came out of our business school, right, it was 2012. Remember, 2012 was, 2010 was the height of renewables. In two years, they crashed. 2012 to 2014 to 2016, went back to big oil. You know, Exxon was, was killing it. Now Exxon's out of the indices. Like, Exxon is struggling. And this is five years later. With the renewables and other tech players have completely taken over. This is going to be the pace of innovation, right? This is going to be the, the You're pace kind of convincing me. You're kind of convincing me because another thing is like just the amount of deadwood that needs to be burned. Like if you think of the S&P, 
you know, you have all of these companies that are only surviving because of like government intervention and, you know, they're kind of like zombie companies. Mm. In the NASDAQ, you have less of these just because most of them are new and, you know, basically the odds of you being uh, adjusted to the next, uh, you know, whatever's happening next are just much higher if you're in the NASDAQ. And by the way, it's crazy. I opened the Wall Street Journal. You, you kind of are right. I mean, the, the PE ratio of, of the S&P and NASDAQ are pretty close. <laughs> Which tells you that the S&P is completely overvalued, actually, right? You have to see where is the bigger uh, potential for, for earnings growth. And it, the growth is the part, not the current state. For sure, for sure. But, but I completely, my thesis, right? again, we haven't, we haven't for all of our, of our listeners who are like, these guys are just, you know, uh, going off the cuff. We're not necessarily, we're looking these things up um, in real time and, to get to a real P2P ratio analysis, you have to dig in, you know, pull out, look at comparable companies and so on and so forth. Again, look at future earnings. We're just doing this really kind of quick and dirty, but the quick and dirty picture still gives us a nice little view. And I agree with you. It's 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 off of, you know, everything in the market is off of future earnings potential. However, given what we're talking about is that digital transformation and digitization of assets underpins everything, you know, point number one. Point number two is that, you know, like you said, there is dead wood uh, within the S&P or old industries, which is why the tech companies are starting to take more and more share of the index, of the S&P index. Um, you know, and three is even if there's going to be investment or revitalization of traditional industries, they're going to need some sort of tech component regardless, right? They're going to need to partner with tech companies. And if industries die, again, this is, I think, is a very important point. If industries die, let's say mining, mining dies, you're not going to take a town of miners and just let them, you know, struggle. If we learned anything from the rise of kind of Donald Trump is that there's a lot of pain in the country that people have overlooked. And this pain is jobs left behind, jobs killed by AI, jobs killed by globalization, jobs killed by automation. The only way to help these folks is to bring them into the job market of today. And the job market of today is all tech driven. It just is, right? So there are code academies set up for these for people in small towns now. I mean, these things have already started happening over the last five, seven years. And I think now they're going to get accelerated because it's it's very clear that these people feel a lot of pain and we need to help them. So, and so again, this comes to tech. Yeah, no, that's that's a very good point too, which is like, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna help people, so you're gonna put them in the new industries. It's true. Uh, you know, you could even say Amazon hiring all of these workers uh, now. Uh, you know, all of the people that were laid off because of COVID, and then Amazon hired them. You know, you get more exposure to that on the Nasdaq than on the S and P. That's a very yeah. very interesting point. So let me do what you did to me last time, which is like. Let's say I'm completely convinced. How would you make the devil's advocate case of like why you know the S&P is better? Hmm. I think my devil's advocate will only be in the short term. Although, well, no, there's I think two cases for the S&P. Two cases for the S&P. One is a case that I currently kind of live and breathe. Although after this episode, I think I'm myself I'm going to change my my investment thesis. I hold a bunch of S&P index funds. And so this is, the S&P is a tried and true 
fund that's going to increase whatever 10 to 14 percent year over year and so if you're more of a risk averse investor and or um, if you're willing to accept the um, the exposure to tech that the S&P gives you and say hey it's growing but I have I'm more diversified within the S&P and I'm less tolerant of short-term or medium-term fluctuations the S&P is an incredible index for you right I think that's one and two is if you're just thinking about this in the next for the next year until the end of 2021 I think the S&P is actually a very nice uh, a very nice portfolio because there will be spikes within certain S&P companies. Yeah. Again, like like entertainment or like travel. Yeah. Like the vaccine. Right. So you're saying the short-term case for S&P could be stronger than the short-term case for for tech. Short-term. Uh, as, as, the devil, as the devil's advocate. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because like. You, I want to go back to something that you said, which is like a lot of the, um, you know, companies with the digital transformation, the tech companies are going to be the ones benefiting benefiting from it. But I could I could make the opposite case, which is like the, you know, now that a business can use Facebook to advertise more efficiently, maybe the business captures a lot of that upside. You know what I mean? And not Facebook. <coughs> like... For, for sure, but current valuation, of course, you would have wanted to invest in Facebook when they IPO'd. But like given the current Facebook valuation and the current valuation of like random company A that can now use Facebook to digitally transform, maybe random company A, the, its stock will go up more than the stock of Facebook. Like, for example, just think about it. The number one advertiser, I think, on Facebook is like Unilever or one of these like, you know, CPG global brands. Mm -hmm. And like, who benefits more, the fact that Facebook gets their ad dollars or the fact that they're advertising more efficiently on Facebook instead of buying TV ads, which are more expensive and less efficient? Well, I know we're trying to make the devil's advocate, but I would say individually, yes, of course, Unilever. But collectively, Facebook, right? This is why they keep on growing and and they keep on consolidating. Tech also has this gravitational pull to the first mover or to to the you know scale advantage player, yeah. right? So Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Apple. It's very really hard to break these these super conglomerates, if you will, super majors because of the network effects they have to the data they collect, right, to the AI, it becomes a virtual cycle for them. And so Facebook will always be better than someone else because of it's better able to train its modeling based on the AI that it has, based on data and so on and so forth. Uh, so yes, Unilever gets more, sells more of their product for a little bit of a cut to Facebook, but ultimately there's a shit ton of Unilevers out there, right? And everybody's gonna come, come to Facebook. It's always gonna be that platform for ads. And yeah. so still blame on Facebook for doing this, right? And I think the other thing is, the other question is, do you believe, what do you think is the biggest, bigger TAM, total addressable market? In the non, in the traditional industries, again, this is what we need to bring in Joe Biden, right? And Biden presidency. Is the bigger TAM in already digitized industries, right? Or is the bigger TAM for tech in the non-digitized industries that need to still go through the digital transformation. 
And if it's a letter, then tech is going to take an overwhelming lion's share in your term because they're going to need in the next probably one to two to three years, right? I still don't buy that. I have to say this idea of like who captures most of this value, you know, I'm still not convinced. Like if you just think about it, you're talking about, let's say, uh, let's think of an energy company, right? So let's say an energy company can now use AI to generate, you know, energy more efficiently. Let's say, like, uh, I think Google did this with like, um, you know, like lowering their data center costs by doing something more efficient about like the electricity. So, okay, so they don't have the in-house knowledge like Google to do it all in one place. So they hire like an AI company to do, like they hire Microsoft to do the thing for them. I don't know if like Microsoft will capture more of the value. You know, it's almost like a classic business school case where you say, you have value created, but like how much of the value is captured? Because in a sense, if you think about it, the monopoly power is not with the tech company in my uh, example of like an energy company, right? So the energy company has like a monopoly over a certain area or whatever. And then they have more leverage when they negotiate because the tech stuff is kind of commoditized. Like, there's the tech, the network effects of the tech uh, companies, which is, you know, like the audiences and Amazon's network and all of that stuff. But then the actual knowledge of how to do tech, how to use artificial intelligence to do better data science and all of that stuff, that's kind of commoditized, no? Like it, it is, but you're talking about a, a bigger volume, bigger end size. You're going to have a bunch of these companies coming to Microsoft, right, or Amazon. And it, it's it's like being, you know, it's like being how the banks get so big, right? They're taking a little bit off the top. So it's, this is the same thing for tech, right? It's, what's banking? What's ultimately checking and savings accounts or iBanking or market making? They're all fairly commoditized. Maybe it's about the Rolodex. But it's the same stuff, right? You're taking a little bit off the top. Same thing for tech. There's, it's commoditized. Even like on the cloud, Microsoft, Azure, and AWS are going to be imperative very soon. And it's so the point is, can you reach a whole bunch of its scale, right? It's just scale. Can you reach a whole bunch of the market? And these guys have such super scale that they're going to always be needed and they're going to be entrenched a whole bunch of different industries. Okay. So you still think that even though I, let's say I'm a PG&E and I have a monopoly on providing electricity to California uh, and let's say tech can help me lower my costs so I go to Google, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, not, not Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon and I tell them look guys I need someone to do artificial intelligence to lower my costs. Uh, you think that whoever ends up getting the contract will capture more value than the value captured by PG&D. No, not at all. I do think I do think PG&E will capture this value, right? More value, but there's going to be a ton of PG&Es. So unless all of these companies have yeah, come to a Microsoft, S&P. That's my whole. I know. Point. So it's like, I know, but, would the S&P capture the value, or would the Nasdaq capture the value? But here's my point: not all the companies that are going to come to Microsoft and Amazon. Um, are going to be part of the S&P. Some will, some won't. Some will be part of the NASDAQ. Some will, you know, like, there's just, tech also comes to tech. It's like a lawyer hiring another lawyer for whatever it is you need to do. Okay. 
But, but I don't buy this because you could say the same thing of like PG&E, instead of going to Google, could go to a small startup that does artificial intelligence that's not like publicly traded. Like, I don't I don't think there's any reason to think that, you know, we're just talking about company from index A going to company from index B and acquiring services and like who captures the value index A or index B. Like once you start going outside of the indexes, it can be both ways, you know. It can be both ways, but it's not necessarily going to. You're not going to go to a small startup at this scale. right? You're going to go to a certain size tech players. They're going to be on the, on the exchange. And it's not always, it's not always as direct, um, direct kind of shift right, from one index to the other. It's not a zero-sum game. They can deconstruction contracts that have revenue share components them and so on and so forth. I think as a as a tech player, you just need to capture enough from a lot of these different players on an S and P or not. Again, S and P 500 is just it's, a, it's an index of 500 companies ultimately, right? There's a ton more out there. They're going to come to these these uh, tech players. Nasdaq is 5,000, right? The S and P is 500, literally. So when you're outside of these 500 companies, when you come you're going to have a lot of value rolling in. And and even if you're just restricted from, from index to index, it, the value that you you digitize so you can be better for your customers, how you ultimately pass down those savings and efficiencies is up to you. But it doesn't mean that this continued digitization is not going to disproportionately in the short term, especially benefit the tech companies that are going to they're going to price this and 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 require a lot of um, a lot of outlay of capital to get for the digitization, mm-hmm. right? Plus, there are many other models. So think about so we talked about value pools. Let's let's think about this way, right? So what do all tech companies do? PG&E comes to Microsoft and says, Microsoft, we want to set an Azure and use your AI. Microsoft says, fantastic, let's do that. The the underbid. Amazon and they win the contract. They are almost operating the base contract at break even. They're not taking any value off the value pool, right? All the value ultimately is going to go to PG&E after PG&E is, has installed this this AI and they're going to they now operating a little bit more efficiently, right? Mm-hmm. But Microsoft then goes and starts now they're a player in energy. And now they have all this back data on energy. And as they collect the data, they can come to Nextera Energy and say, hey, Nextera Energy, we just do this for PG&E. We can do this for you too. But because we have, you know, we can we have aggregated data, our AI can be better and so on and so forth. Then they sell secondary tertiary services off of this, sell data to consumer groups. Or this happens all the time. Facebook does this, Amazon does this, and so on and so forth, right? This is what we, we talk about. This is the whole um, upside of tech companies. So there are other there are other value streams that scale gives you from winning some of these contracts, even if they're very close, very low margin, very close to cost, that are beyond the, this specific transaction, right? That 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 kind of transcend the uh, this individual transaction that two companies will have. So I think the index is small, tons of companies outside the S&P 500 index, plus there's all this other value in aggregating data for the tech companies, reselling it, trading their AI, going deeper and further and better, and so on and so forth. 
right? So I don't think actually it's going to be these like PG&E in this case in the long run. In the short in the short run, it will be Microsoft. In the medium run, it will be PG&E. In the long run, it's going to be Microsoft again. You know what? I think you kind of convinced me. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> it's a very very strong case. Um, and, and like, would you do this now or would you do this a little bit after the vaccine now gets distributed? You give it like a year to affect the S&P and then like switch over. Let's say like 100% of your net worth currently was in the S&P. Uh, how would you manage your transition to, um, to NASDAQ? As you know, my friend, that during COVID, I expected this thing to fall, right? COVID to fall. And I was like, for the first time in my life, I was, I said to myself, break the rules and time the market. It dipped. And I was like, oh my God, I need to sell everything. I sold in the dip. Then it went back up by like 5%. And I panicked and did something stupid and I bought. And then it fell down 30 more percent. So not only did I, when I tried to time the market, I created a taxable event for myself. I also lost a lot of value. <laughs> so I will not do this again. And I will not time in the market anymore. Lesson learned, even though it was, should have been learned by any normal, you know, uh, if I listen to any kind of common sense inside my head, I, what I would do, and I'm going to start putting in, you know, dollar cost averaging into the NASDAQ more. I'm already very exposed to tech. You know my portfolio. And for the listeners, I have S&P 500 indexes. I have um, double leverage S&P 500. Um, Shimon, you, you know, told me about this, but it probably two thirds of my portfolio is in a handful of tech companies. I'm happy to, if there are questions, to tell which ones. Um, but I think I'm going to, I'll leverage the, the NASDAQ for a little bit. I'll put some money in there and then uh, I'll also buy the index fund and I'll just kind of dollar cost average into it. Let the market come to me, put some limit orders to buy them and, so what you're saying is you're currently 70% in tech, 30%? Yeah, probably some. Yeah, I'm probably, that's probably, uh, that's probably right there. 70, oh, 75%. So just, uh, talking your book, basically. This is what this whole podcast was about, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it was. Well, I'm not, I'm not indexed. I'm not uh, NASDAQ indexed, but I'm, I'm very, very tech happy in general. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. Oh, it's good. It's good. I um I think what I'll do is I have my um so I I'm exposed to tech only through the S and P 500 and um yeah what I'll do is I'll probably start transitioning maybe six months from now into Nasdaq. I still think in the very short term uh there's more upside in in S and P uh, just because of the vaccine and the stimulus. Mm-hmm. And all that stuff. That might so, be that might be that might be right. That might be right. Well, yeah, we'll see how it plays out. So, for the last couple of minutes, any thoughts on Bitcoin that uh, we we have? Uh, just have to say, it just it feels really good. Not not just because we're at an all time high, but because I really feel that I've earned it. You know, when it went down to like thirty five hundred dollars, both like in twenty eighteen and then again in March. And I was just holding, and now I think it's good. It's um, happy to enjoy the the upside because it you was, weren't. It you, didn't. You come. weren't just holding. You were smart. You actually bought a thirty. Yeah, I can buy. That's true. That's very true. You you pulled a smart move, and I I uh, I wish I uh, I bought. And I was I was so exposed that I lost. You know, looking back on it, 
you and I both went in 2017 when it was very like before it was it reached its all-time highs and then went high and then a lot of it we were in shit coins I'm still ashamed to say I'm in a lot of shit coins I'm just waiting to figure out how to exit those, those positions in some sort of smart way but you know some of our portfolio took like a 90% hit and it took balls of steel so to speak to yeah. to hold through the the fall but we held through and you know yeah and you were you were smart you were much smarter than me in this case and you were telling me to buy 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 but I was I was you know I've lost so much and I was so extended in Bitcoin at that point I couldn't bear myself to to buy more but now I'm kicking myself it would have been a nice four x return <laughs> over there more more six x return yeah but you know you can't you can't uh, again time the market uh, so what what do you think of Bitcoin going forward given uh, the new uh, administration and everything that's going on. I think that there's gonna be so much bullshit frankly from like the Trump transition and the covid and our standing globally that I hope these guys don't think about Bitcoin and <laughs> just so overwhelmed with everything else and let Bitcoin have more and more runway to become entrenched. Look, I mean all the big guys are coming up with Bitcoin ETFs like the big uh, the trading the S&P 500 I think, right? S&P is coming up with a Bitcoin ETF. I mean, look, it's here to stay. So for people who haven't invested in Bitcoin, please do it just for your own good. I mean, we all we want people, we want the listeners to be to benefit, and um, uh, we we should we can have a quick Bitcoin session or another podcast just talk about why it's good. But uh, I don't know what do you think? I know you're very bullish, and we can talk about micro strategy as well. Yeah, so I'm just thinking. Uh, first of all, this is not investment advice, uh, which is what people Fair say enough. every time before giving investment advice so <laughs> uh no it's it's crazy because like you know yes it's nice that it's back in the all-time high and stuff and i i thought you know when i, I bought a bunch of bitcoin when it was like thirteen thousand uh down from twenty thousand and then it like crashed completely and you know i never lost my conviction because i said look this thing i don't see any reason why it should not take all of gold's market cap and, and and that puts it at $500,000 per Bitcoin. And you don't have to believe anything else. Uh, you know, you don't have to believe into all the crazy libertarian uh, scenarios that talk about, like, defunding the government. Because And you don't even have to believe that the government will do anything to stop it. Because, like, the government isn't doing anything to stop gold. And, uh, and like, it's a $10 trillion market because it's still tiny. So... I think the upside is very big, but yeah, what happened on the corporate level was just like complete a, a complete surprise to me because like, you know, there were these libertarians talking about like speculative attacks on currencies, which is what George Soros did uh, to the British pound. And you basically what you do is you borrow if you have a weak currency and a stronger currency, you borrow in the weak currency and you use this to buy the strong currency. But like the thing is, if enough people do that, the weak currency continues weakening more and more and the strong currency keeps strengthening more and more. So that's called a speculative attack. And, you know, I was sure that people would do it like, you know, like individuals, they would just like basically buy Bitcoin on their credit card. So you borrow U.S. dollars and you buy Bitcoin. But like to see the corporates doing it is just like amazing. So what MicroStrategy did for, for anyone who doesn't know First of all, the guy, so the CEO, he controls the company. So he has like all the voting power in the company. 
uh, even though he has other shareholders. Uh, and what he did is he bought Bitcoin with his personal money. Um, so something like, I don't remember how many, but it's like tens of millions of dollars of his personal money. Then he disclosed it to the board of the company and said, look, I want to take all of my company's treasury, literally $500 million, and just buy Bitcoin with it. Because he was very worried that the government is printing a lot of money. Uh, now with COVID. And so, and he told the board, like, look, even though I can like shove this through because I have all the voting power, if you're not comfortable with this decision, I will buy your stock at a premium. I will buy you out, essentially. Um, and so he did that. He bought like $500 million of Bitcoin, his entire company treasury. And then now today he announced that he's going to uh, borrow $400 million additionally through issuing of convertible bonds um, that, that convert into company stock um, and buy Bitcoin with it, which is crazy. So he's basically leveraging himself almost two to one on his company's treasury to buy uh, Bitcoin. Now, when you think about it as a speculative attack against the US dollar, it makes perfect sense. I don't think a corporation has any question on whether their U.S. dollars will be worth more or less next year. They will be worth less, for sure. The government is going to print a lot of money. And the election results are, I'm actually super happy with the election results. Because, you know, Biden is a normal, good, smart guy, right? <laughs> but he has a lot of crazy people in his party that were pushing for very, very radical uh, things both on the tax side, so like to increase taxes like crazy, and also on the on the expenditure side, on the on the fiscal on the um, uh, fiscal policy, and so now he doesn't have the Senate, uh, so even like if Georgia goes to the Democrats, which it's very low likelihood they get both seats. Uh, somebody told me like for example, there's a Democratic senator that's really uh, not against fracking, and so if they want to do something crazy against fracking, like then he will oppose it. Or like there's many things where you it's not enough for you to have just 51 votes, which is what will happen if if the Republicans lose both seats in Georgia. So I'm very happy. So the government, basically, the only lever it has is to just print a bunch of money and give it to industries that they like, give it to people that they like, cancel student debt, which is like insane to me because like students are the rich people and like people who will have to pay for this canceling of student debt are the poor people, but it doesn't matter. That's just... Wait, are you, you pro-canceling student debt? No, I'm against canceling student debt. Oh, okay, okay. This is, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's a stupid... Like, if you want to help, you know, students, just, like, give them money. My point is, they're going to print a lot of money, and this speculative attack on the dollar from corporations is amazing. I see Bitcoin getting at least, at least, at least to $30,000, $35,000 by the end of next year. Many people are much more bullish than me. They think 100000 by the end of next year. But uh, that's what I think will happen. I think basically both of these things, the, the tech boom accelerates Bitcoin, COVID accelerates Bitcoin, and the recent election accelerates Bitcoin. Well, I think we need to record another podcast about this. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what happens. We, at the pace at which we've been recording things, uh, a lot will happen until next time. But that's true. But, but we need to step it up. Let's step it up. I think <laughs> um, these are these are a lot of fun, and we should just uh, we shouldn't wait anymore.
Totally. Sounds good. All right. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you uh, want to reach out to us, uh, Hardcore Finance is the name of the podcast. You can reach out to me at Shimon Lazarov on Twitter. Um, Alex, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, at Mr. Ibida, E-B-I-T-D-A, like uh, the earnings, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Uh, that know, it's a bad finance fund. Gets you. I always hate amortization. Yeah, amortization <laughs> always gets you. Mr. Ibida, <laughs> at Mr. Ibida on Twitter. Very nice. We'll put it in the show notes. We would love to hear from you. Uh, it would be very helpful to know which topics are interesting to you uh, so we can record episodes on them. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. And we'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.